I think people tend to set limitations that are made up fictional limitations to themselves. And I think you need to always try to ask the questions like, is this actual limitations that I have? Or is it limitations that I'm just creating because I'm scared to do the things I want to do? Vaishali Lara Katuria is a New York-based equity analyst investing in emerging markets. She started her finance career at Norges Bank Investment Management and likes to consider herself the Drew Joyce of asset management. She's born and raised in Bergen, Norway, to Indian parents and has lived in Norway, India, Mexico, Argentina and Italy. Let's start the episode. Quarter is the new way of doing company research. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world straight to your pocket. Quarter's mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. Quarter is 100% free. They include companies from 15 markets today and plan to add more over time. They always prioritize requested companies, which users can easily do in the app. Users can also leave reactions while listening to the conference calls to make their voice heard. So check out Quarter. Q-U-A-R-T-R. All opinions expressed by Christopher Vonheim or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of BIN. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christophe Volnheim as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Welcome back, everybody. Super excited to be joined by Vashali. And Vashali, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me on. Feels like this podcast has been in the making for three to four years, but I'm so happy we finally got the chance to to do it. Can you just make a quick introduction until uh, about your upbringing and how you got involved in this finance circus? Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, where to start? I guess. I mean, my name is Vaishali. I grew up. Uh, I'm born and raised in Bergen, Norway, which is the second largest city of Norway. Um, I grew up with Indian parents, so I grew up going in between New Delhi and Bergen, which is probably the two starkest different countries or places you can think of on planet Earth. Um, And I think that really influenced what I wanted to do, which was that I always kind of questioned myself, questioned why there was a difference between India being a poor country that was really large and had a lot of people and Norway being a smaller country that was very uh, wealthy and the kind of access I had to education um, and opportunities here versus what my cousins and my family back home had in India. And so I think early on, I got this interest in economics and trying to understand how the world works, I guess. And so I went to study at the Norwegian School of Economics. Uh, I took a bachelor and master's there. Um, And then, you know, something that people tend to not say is that, you know, I I was very active in, I I thought I wanted to be a journalist. And so I was very active in the student newspaper at the Norwegian School of Economics. And I ended up working in communications and public relations after I graduated from there and quickly realized that I needed to course correct and kind of find a new path. And I think that's really important for young people because I think people think that, you know, you start off on this journey and then everything kind of goes smoothly in one direction, but that's not really the case, right? You, you try things, you fail, you try things you might not enjoy, and then you eventually sort of find your way to whatever you're supposed to do in life, uh, career-wise. So I decided, you know, I, I want to course correct a little bit. And I had, I decided then I had two dreams that I, I didn't want to sort of let go of. One was to move to New York City to study at an Ivy League school. And I know it's, you know, childish in a sense that you probably watched 
I probably saw some television show and I saw an Ivy League school and I learned what that was. And I said, oh, I wish I can do that, you know, one day. And so I thought, you know, I'm not, I don't enjoy what I'm doing right now. So let's, let's go. Let's, let's try to, you know, reach that goal. And so I, you know, did everything. I mean, I started off, you know, given that you're from Norway, I didn't know anyone who went to Ivy League. I didn't, I didn't know anything about that. I started identifying which schools I wanted to go to. I found out Columbia University is in New York. So I thought, you know, kill two birds with one stone. And I started kind of just, you know, focusing on how to get into Columbia University. And I, I think I spent two years, I always had it in the back of my mind that I wanted to do it. So I, I did a lot of things during my education and my childhood that, but I think during those two years, I just um, applied. I think I, the first day was literally Googling how to get into Columbia University um, and take it from there. And then in 2014, I moved to New York. I started a new master's degree in international affairs where I focused on finance and economic policy. Um, and then I realized within a year that New York is not one of those places that I just want to have living experiences in. New York is home. Like I never felt as home as I, I do in New York because I'm still living there. And so I, I realized, you know, I want to work in finance because I found that to be very interesting. But I want to work in finance in a sense to make finance a part of the solution of you know, global issues. And so I thought, okay, I want to work in finance. I want to stay in New York and working for the oil fund, Norgis Bank is sort of, you know, something that I think a lot of Norwegians want to do, um, kind of serving a larger purpose, not only working for the Norwegian people, but also sort of working for one of the largest investors in the world that can really move the needle in terms of making the investor community part of uh, the the solution, not the problem. And so I kind of, you know, set another target, which was to get a job at Norgis Bank in New York and um, took, you know, internships at Morgan Stanley, um, did internships at Clinton Foundation, uh, did a lot of focus on, on finance in my studies, and then, you know, found an opening uh, when I was graduating from Columbia um, at NBIM. And I did not have a plan B. <laughs> Basically, I walked into the interview and I said, this, I was made for this job and I, I need this job. Um, and, and fortunately, you know, I got it. And so I spent four years working for the oil fund in New York. Um, in 2020, I actually decided right before COVID hit, I decided to start working at uh, another private in New York to get a little bit more broad experience. And, and that's where I'm at right now. So that was a very long reply to your short answer, short question, I guess. Basically the whole life story, but going back just a bit, because I want to talk about some concepts and pair them up together. Can you talk a bit about that feeling of being the second generation in a new country and the pressure tied into that and the need to get straight A's, et cetera, because you've made many people say that they feel like they deserved or the parent their parents deserve that they're trying their best to achieve the greatest dreams right can you just talk about that concept and how that reflects you know upbringing education and that drive and ambition yes definitely i think i mean the the kind of obvious um the, exactly what you're saying i think we do have this art as second generations make us aware of it too, how much they sacrifice to give us all the opportunities that you get when you grow up in Norway, Norway versus the countries we're from, right? The fact that education is free, which is something we in Norway take for granted, um, which is not something you, you take for granted other places. So, and, and I think that it's also about, you know, leading by example. So, my mom, she is the youngest of nine siblings. She's from a village, literally a village outside of New Delhi. Um, and she, during her lifetime, during her generation, have gone from being, you know, a rural working class Indian to uh, upper middle class Norwegian, you know, just her. Um, and my, my dad has a similar story. And 
you know, if that is who your parents are, you know, when people say, oh, Vashali, you've been able to do so much at a young age, I say, you know, you should meet my parents. I haven't really, you know, I haven't done half of what they have done during their generation, you know, where you get that grit from, you don't take anything for granted. Uh, and you have these people that are leading by example. But then I think thirdly, and I think it's also a kind of underestimated aspect of being second generation is you always feel like an outsider. Um, sometimes people make that very clear to you that you are other, as we say it, or it, it, you're, you're very clear on it yourself. You know, I didn't grow up with a lot of people who looked like me. And I think when you have that outsider perspective, you tend to be very underestimated and you're sort of like the underdog, right? And and I don't know about you, but for me, I, I love being underestimated. I think underestimated and being, you know, being underestimated is very motivating for me. You know, I, I get I get this like feeling, you know, I'm gonna show you, you know, you think I can't do this? Well, I'm gonna show you that I can. And and I think that level of adversity that you feel because you're an outsider people tell you you can't do things it just you just want to prove them so much and I remember I mean this is sort of a I can't believe I'm sharing this on a podcast but um you know the LeBron documentary more than a game I don't know if you've seen that so so it's about LeBron for those of you who haven't seen it it's called more than a game and it's not only about LeBron but it's about all of his buddies that he plays basketball with during his childhood and there's this one guy that plays basketball in this group of five and his name is Drew Joyce and Drew Joyce is literally the shortest person you know he's a really tiny guy really skinny and there's this you know, whenever I go on an important job interview or I'm, I'm having an exam or something and I, I feel this like I want to I want to kind of foster this underdog feeling, I will watch the scene from this documentary when Drew Joyce, who is so underestimated with any, from anyone, gets traded into a game and scores seven three-pointers during that game and sort of proves everyone wrong, right? And that, that I don't re-watch the whole documentary, but I'll watch that clip on YouTube every time I have like a job interview. <laughs> so, so I think, yeah, I think, I think being the underdog is something that really motivates me. I don't think I'm considered an underdog anymore maybe, but yeah, I think that's a really important aspect. I think that is overlooked when you talk about people of second generation, for sure. Definitely. It's funny that you reference LeBron because I have a similar, not documentary, but there's a book about Stephen Curry who has like the same because he was the smallest guy, tiniest guy. And look at him now just beating the three point record. But it's so it's again a bit funny because I, I was uh, about to ask you about another movie or a TV series. I can't remember if it's Sex in the City or Girls or anything like that. But you have used that series as a reference into why you decided to go to New York and really go for it. Do you remember that story at all? Yeah, <laughs> yes. Uh, interesting that you asked me about that. So basically, I'm a part of uh, the alumni organization of SICT, which is what the Crown Prince of Norway has. Uh, it's sort of a, it, his philosophy behind it is to bring people between the age of 20 and 40 together every year and sort of foster collaborations um, across industries uh, and, and sort of make good things happen. And um, in 2016, I was attending this conference and I was asked to, um, I was asked to spend five minutes talking about what drives me, what's my sort of driver. And, you know, usually when people get these five minutes, they spend it talking about what they've done and what they've achieved in life. And I remember at that point, I just started working at the oil fund and I, you know, honestly didn't feel I'd achieved anything. You know, I'd, I'd just been ambitious and, and, you know, reach the goals I wanted to set, but I hadn't started a company. I hadn't, you know, saved lives in any ways. I hadn't, you know, served as a soldier. I hadn't done anything like that. So I felt, you know, if I have five minutes in front of all these sort of future leaders of Norway that are young and ambitious, Prince and other kind of CEOs and so on, what do I want to tell them? And I think one thing that, especially 
you know, I think it's a good thing and a bad thing. I think as a millennial, I think that especially in Norway, we grow up having the luxury, I guess, to focus all of our energy to kind of, you know, on the highest, uh, highest level of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? You know, self-realization. We don't have to focus on getting food on our table. We don't have to focus on, you know, getting a roof over our heads. We can just focus on kind of being the best that we can be in whatever, you know, whatever shape or form. And I think my agenda for those five minutes was to tell people like me, my peers, you know, that's great. But I think at the end of the day, we need to have humbleness that, you know, at the end of the day, we're just workers. And, and what we're trying to do is we need to collaborate in order to solve problems that are quite imminent. You know, when we talk about social inequality globally, when we talk about climate change, we're when we look at politicians not being able to make those changes at them, you know, or their, their shortcomings, I would say, you know, I think it's important that we try to humble ourselves in the sense that it's not only about you reaching your, you know, potential, but it's more about how can I be a part of changing the world to the better and maybe not getting attention for it, but just being a part of, you know, the solution going forward. And I think the reason I mentioned it was from girls is that it's the opening scene where Hannah says that, you know, I want to be the voice of my generation. And I, I remember being so sort of, what do you call it? Like self uh, self-focused that I was like, I was laughing because yes, it is completely who I am. And I think our generation is, but I think we shouldn't be that way, I guess. And I think that was sort of my agenda of what I wanted to tell people that day. It's a very good story. Uh, just going back to another concept. So in general, if you're going to, if you are going to have success in finance, it's brutal hours. It's a lot of hard work. I mean, there are some very, I would even dare to call them funny surveys from Goldman Sachs, et cetera, that kind of like just summarize the pressure, right? Being young, trying to, to succeed. If you have to talk about two concepts, work-life balance versus work-life harmony, do you have a view on those two concepts and has that evolved over the years? Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, I would say that the finance industry, I think people think of it as more monolith than it really is. So um, in terms of working on what we call sell side, you know, working in investment banks such as Goldman versus what I do for work, it's very different. Um, so you can definitely, if you have an interest in working in finance, I think people tend to look at, you know, watch these TV shows like Billions or Industry and thinking, you know, that's 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 all there is to that industry. And I would say um, it's not really, it's one of the largest industries in the world. So you can definitely obtain work-life balance uh, or work-life harmony in that industry, but it is one of those industries where you do get very engulfed in what you do, right? You're trying to constantly watch the market and try to beat everyone in the market. So you can get very, it can drown you in the sense that that's all that you care and think about 24 seven, definitely. Um, but when it comes to, I mean, I can only speak for myself. You know, I'm 33 now and I, I think I've been one of those people that I'm sure you have most of them that you have on your podcast, that people that are, you know, they're, they're very, we're very, you know, we, we, we don't leave things to chance. We have sort of our plans, we have our ambitions and then we go for them and we really want to reach certain goals in life. And, you know, Carpe raps about planning your life in a Excel spreadsheet. Now, I've definitely been one of those people. I still probably am one of those people. I don't leave anything to chance. I would argue that I don't have the privilege of leaving things to chance either. You know, um, I think, you know, when you hear people like, oh, and then I just applied for that job and I got it and now I love it. Like I was not, I, I was not one of those people. I would set a target and then try to reach that target. That's kind of been my life. But I think now I, I'm at this place in my life where, and you talk about work-life harmony. Um, I think I'm trying to 
find that, I guess. I think I'm going from building resume to building character, um, which for me entails trying to find out who I've been, you know, instead of kind of where I'm going, trying to be like, who am I as a person? What do I enjoy doing? Um, what do I care about? What kind of, uh, what kind of issues, you know, do I solve as a person? Like what makes me happy? What enriches my life essentially? Um, and so, yes, I think, you know, if there's something that I want your listeners to sort of come away with, with this conversation is that at some point, you know, doing those things is really important, but at one point, you know, take, you know, rest and sort of, you know, harvest what you've reached. And, you know, maybe you're on, uh, maybe you're on autopilot for now, and maybe you're, you're, you to go forward, you know, in the future, but try to go on autopilot occasionally when it comes to your work. So you can focus on, you know, your life and, and, and becoming the person you want to be personally as well. Right. Yeah. I find it to be a very interesting topic because if you go to, if you go on the route that there's a work life balance, that also implies that you have a trade off to make, right? So there's a amount, there's a, there's a scale to be made here. So, but if you go the harmony route, maybe you become more resilient because obviously you can't control the finance markets. So if the finance markets is going to dominate your life and well-being, it's probably just a matter of time until you're going to have some very bad months and then it can spiral, right? So without going into too much detail, can you sort of share some of the moments where you have felt like, okay, now I need to rest or find other hobbies or other interests and how you have balanced that in your life working in New York? Yeah, I mean, it's a very good, especially because New York is just one of those places where everyone around you is sort of the best at what they do. Uh, and you want to become the best at what you do because of that. Um, I think in Norway, the benefit is that we do have the privilege of being able to find balance, you know, find that harmony as we're referring to um, that because we can, you know, leave work a little bit earlier and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, it becomes an identity identity defining thing, what you do for work a hundred percent. I would say, you know, 2020 was a, was a hard year for everyone. And it was also a year that I think a lot of people reflected on, especially what they do for work, just because, and you do see this great, you know, the great resignation. And I think the reason is that you spend a lot of time alone. You spend a lot of time away from your office. So you, you, you're really, you really get to focus on what is it that I do day to day? And do I actually like what I do day to day? You know, does it enrich my life? Um, so yeah, you had like a great resignation, but I think 2020 was really hard for me too, but I think 2021 was definitely, you know, this year has been very, def you know, defining in the sense that, I mean, it's hard to not get not get personal, but I think I think people like myself, um, we 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 want to plan. You know, you can plan education and you can plan your career in a spreadsheet. You know, you can find target that you can reach. But when it comes to your personal, you can't. You know, you, you don't know when you're going to find who you're going to be with. You don't know when you're, if you're going to be a parent, if you want to be, when you can, if there's a deadline, which it is as a woman. And I think, I think my year now that I'm early thirties, I think this is when I've started realizing that, you know, there are certain things that you can't plan. And there are certain things that you thought you know, I pictured my life at 33 when I was younger and I thought I was somewhere else than I, than I am. And you can make that ruined you or stress you out, or it can make you say, okay, I wasn't where I wanted to be uh, at 33, but maybe I am at 35 or I'm redefining what I want to be or where I want to be and try to not, you know, have that mentality of 
Joneses, as you say in the US, right? Like, oh, you know, by the time I'm on this age, I want to be engaged. And then by the time I'm this age, I want to have one kid or, you know, now it's time to buy, you know, I move from an apartment to a house and I think, or have a dog in a Volvo. And, you know, I think you as a person have to decide, you know, what is most important to you? Is it important to you to kind of follow the recipe of life, the way that you are raised to follow it? Or do you kind of try to take life as it comes and then and enjoy that you're alive and that you're healthy and then everything else is sort of sprinkles on a Sunday? And I think maybe 2021 for me was the latter, right? To, to know that I was one of one of the people who, you know, had a place to live, who didn't lose my job, who didn't, wasn't essential worker, who didn't die, who didn't knock on wood, know anyone who did, you know? Um, so everything else that life throws at you is sprinkles on a Sunday. And I think, I think that will make you mentally more resilient. Um, and that's definitely what, you know, I'm trying to preach that to myself, but I think that's really important to, to have in mind, especially for younger people like us. Excellent point. Uh, I just wanted to also, it was a good segue to the cultural differences between, let's keep it easy and say US versus Scandinavia. But I also think you can put Europe in the same bucket, right? It's not that different. Can you tell us the good sides of being in the US? Obviously you get a lot more ambitious. You are surrounded by people that really want you to excel. And there's a bit of a difference if you go, go the same route in Norway. How's that experience been? Because you have friends in Norway, you have worked for a Norwegian company. How do you size them up, those two differences? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I would say, I mean, if we take one step back, I think my childhood dream of living in New York was sort of based on an illusion, right? My illusion of New York or the US, I would say. You know, growing up in Norway, we are very exposed to U.S. culture, whether it's pop culture, whether it's sports, politics. I remember Johan Golden, you know, he, he during the 2020 primary, you know, elections, you know, he was making a joke on television that why is it that Norwegians know all the 20, the name of all the 25 candidates running for <laughs> the Democratic ticket? And we don't know the name of our, you know, secretary of fisheries and agriculture, you know, <laughs> which is so true. Um, and so I think I, you know, this Turkish author, that's my favorite author. She, and I quote her a lot when she says this, she, Elif Shafak, she says, we live in an information society, but I think people have to distinguish between information, knowledge and wisdom. So I think when you have information about something, you, you think that you have knowledge about it, but knowledge actually require for information to become knowledge, you have to have a reflection, you have to build notes, you have to have experiences around it. You have to let that sort of the information you have kind of foster a little bit, right? And then it becomes knowledge. And then eventually maybe with age or more experiences or further reflection, it becomes wisdom. So I think I would say that before I moved to the US, I had an image of the US being, uh, I had information about US, not knowledge about the US, you know? And I think that's, you know, where I wanna go with this. So I would say if I compare it to Scandinavia or Western societies or Europe in general, I would say that the US is not a Western nation. <laughs> and I might get, you know, I might get in trouble for saying that, so the U.S. is a Western nation, you know, New York, urban areas, you know, the California. But I think in terms of uh, overall, the U.S. is a very traditional society, um, traditional in sense of gender roles, traditional in sense of class. Um, I mean, Isabel Wilkinson last year came out with this book called Caste, you know, and when you hear the word caste, you think of Indian society. And she says, you know, the U.S. has a caste system um, and the difference between maybe a caste system in India and a caste system. In the U.S. is that skin color is, you know, mixed into it. Right. So if you go into a building in New York City, an office building, you know, when you go into the reception to check in, most likely 
the person working behind the counter is either Hispanic or, you know, or Latinx or, or Black. And then the further you go up the building in the nicer, more and more nicer parts of the building or higher, higher up, the more you're going to just end up just seeing more and more white people and less and less people of color, right? So I would say that kind of a misunderstanding I had about the U.S. is that it is a Western society. I think in many ways it's, it's not. And I think one thing that's really fascinating is Americans have everything they want and very few of the things they need, right? So you have 200 different versions of breakfast cereals, but they don't have access to universal health care. And I think that that's or, or free higher education. Right. Um, and I think that's a thing that I think us as Scandinavians sort of tend to underestimate about U.S. culture. Um, I would also say I would I would definitely say that I would compare. The U.S. more to um, India in the sense that you have this social kind of inequality, but then you have that hustle mentality, right? And I would compare that way more to Indian culture than I would to Norwegian culture. And as you were referring to, so I think what I, you know, even though you see statistically that upward mobility in the U.S. is going down, you still have individuals who truly believe in their own, they're, you know, picking this, like, uh, what do you call it? Pulling themselves up from the Bruce jobs. Like that's definitely something that's very apparent in the U.S. still. Um, and that kind of belief in, in, in your own, uh, you know, your own ability to become successful uh, and, and you don't, you don't have any, I think in Norway, we, we have the privilege of trusting our government to help us in cultures such as the U S and in India, you would say, you don't have any trust in, in, in the government to solve any of your problems. So either you you know, you can lean on yourself or you lean on your family or people around you or your community, but you don't, you don't trust the government to solve any of your problems, which, but in Norway, we, we tend to do that, right? It's very interesting. I mean, this is going to be very simplified, but I think just looking at it from the outside and having some experience, it seems like sort of the, the A players are better off building stuff in US, while if you're a C player or want a more normal lifestyle, you're way better off being in Norway, right? So it sort of depends and it's contextual as well, right? Oh, 100%. I think it's very winner-take-all society. And I think it's winner-take-all in the sense that if you're born into a privileged family in the US, you're going to continue. You have to really mess up. <laughs> in order to not be successful, right? Uh, but if you are born into a poor family in the US, the odds are really stacked against you. Um, and as an outsider, you can really witness that. Um, but I mean, I'm not gonna rain on anyone's parade, right? I'm gonna say, you know, I, I love the energy that people have and the pride that they bring in their the, their line of work, whether it is the you know the shoe salesman or the or the CEO. So, but but I agree, you know, being mediocre. If you're mediocre, move to Norway and you'll be fine <laughs> either way. And I think maybe that's why there isn't that kind of drive here, right? Because you can do well regardless. Um, and I think also Norwegians tend to take a lot of our opportunities for granted, unfortunately. I agree. We need to talk a bit about uh, finance and investing as well. So let's switch subjects a bit. Uh, I guess when you look at companies, you're trying to find great moats, right? Good companies tend to have moats. Um, just looking at your own moat as an investor, have you been conscious about building that moat? You have you speak languages, you're good at finance, you have great structure in your life. How has that been to build your own moat as an investor? Is it a conscious decision or is it learning by doing? Yeah, it's a good point. It's probably a combination of both, but I would say I lean towards uh, building sort of a character. So, you know, I I remember around the time when I was studying at Columbia, but also sort of flirting with the idea of going into finance. Um, I think one thing that's really 
good in the US education system is that from day one, they encourage you to find your sort of niche, right? Your edge, I guess. Um, and I think one thing that I realized when I moved to the US that I think I underestimated about growing up in Europe, because a lot of people are sort of, you know, have traveled a lot, but you go to the US and you realize that speaking multiple languages is a uniqueness or living in different countries is something that maybe you know, regions we can do, but a lot of Americans haven't done, right? So I think when I was flirting with the idea of going into finance, I remember thinking very, um, you know, very structurally on like what differentiates me from kind of like the stereotype person that goes into finance. So I would say, you know, you talk about point of differentiations or points of parity, right, in economics. So points of parity, things that you have to sort of have in your toolbox is you have to be, you know, good in math. You should have some, I would say that as an investor, I'm very top-down focused, meaning that I focus on macroeconomic trends and then try to find companies that way instead of going, finding a company and then, you know, finding a good company. I would say I find a good market. Maybe if I really believe in Brazil, you know, I try to find the market, find the sector, then find the company. So I go, I always go this approach, right? So, it's, you know, as an investor, you can decide which approach you want to take, or you take a combination of the both of the two. But when I was focusing on it, you know, during that time, this was 2013, 2014, you know, the BRICS, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and then South Africa was sort of this buzzword, right? And and investing in emerging markets or the interest in BRICS countries was still sort of popular asset class to go into. And I remember thinking, okay, wait, you know, I've lived in India, I've lived in Mexico, I'd lived in um, Argentina, I'd lived in Italy uh, and in Norway. And I spoke Hindi, I speak English, I speak Norwegian, and I was at that time quite fluent in Spanish. So I speak four languages. I've lived in you know, six countries at the time. Um, and that could be my edge. That could be my points of differentiating myself. And if I want to work in emerging markets, you know, I could argue that you know, I have a master's uh, in economics and business. I have that. You know, that's a point of parity. But then I also have a master's from Colombian international affairs, you know, with an international finance and economic policy aspect. So when I was interviewing, I would say, you know, not only do I have an academic background that fits the bill of being an equity analyst, but I also have this cultural background, multicultural background that will be helpful when understanding companies in, in these markets and being able to understand the cultures and the cultural nuances and the language. Um, and I think, and, and, and that was, a theory. you know, before I started the industry, that was a theory. And now that I'm in the industry, it's definitely a, a strong point. And I think one thing that, especially Norwegian, you know, Norwegians or, or people that, that are young who are studying, I think one thing that's really important is that you're not only what you study, you're what you study, but it's also what you do on your hobbies and how can you build that in or who you are as a person, you know, did you serve in the military while you're a leader potential, you know, you can always try to build a narrative about you um, and how you, you can differentiate yourself. And, and I think, you know, the U S is a, a big country, right? It's 300 and, 50 or 80 million people, you need to find a way to be unique. And I think having that in mind as a young person trying to get into the job market, I think the sooner you start trying to build that uniqueness, the better. Um, so definitely not something that I, I left uh, to fate at all. Definitely makes sense. Just talking about the, the Norwegian oil fund versus your current company is it the same type of people because from the outside you would would be go a bit far to call it more bureaucratic in the oil fund but let's be honest we have to tr maybe that we could say that versus i mean a more we, we could yeah <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so t tell me a bit about those differences uh so people can relate and sort of understand like you said in, in the beginning of this podcast finance is a large industry 
it's not like when something is in one private equity company, it doesn't mean it's the same to work in venture capital, right? Exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know where to start. I think the differences are less than you you think it is, I guess. It's the same type of people that, that work on the asset management side, the, the part of the finance industry that I do. People are highly intelligent, um, kind of workaholics, I guess, you know, very passionate about markets um, and making money. Um, and um, I mean, yes, obviously, you know, it's not a surprise that working for the Norwegian government or any government job can be more bureaucratic than working for a private company. I, I don't think that's, that's the difference that you will find, you know, in any industry. Um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that, you know, I, I wouldn't say that the differences are as large as people, I think, assume they are, um, for, for sure. And I, I think the interesting thing about being in finance at this point is that it is definitely an industry that is changing, right? You have, you know, the kind of bro culture that you talk about. Those people are moving into tech. You know, you don't make that much money. People who are driven by making money, you know, at this point, you make money more if you go into tech or you start, you know, you start a startup than you do going into finance. So there are people with other types of drive drivers that go into this industry now, which is, I think, for the better. You are getting way more women into the industry, which is which makes, you know, which automatically shifts the dynamic of an industry. Um, and, and we're at this precipice where, you know, the baby boomers are retiring and millennials and Gen Zers are coming into management positions, right? And, and that's just gonna naturally change the cultures, I think, in, in these industries quite quickly. Um, and, I, and I think it's, you know, it's about time, I guess, because I think if there's one industry that really needs to change and really needs to realize that, you know, we can't just be running after for high returns, we have to think about sustainable return, you know, and that's sort of a new sort of lingo that we have in finance now. We have to change the, the mentality that people that come into this industry has. And I think that's naturally going to happen when new people are coming in and baby boomers are retiring. Not that all baby boomers don't care about these things, but they don't. <laughs> I guess they, they do so less, I guess. But no, I'm just kidding. But um, yeah, and, and I, I would say, you know, during Black Lives Matter last year, I wrote this op-ed in uh, Dog and Snatting Sleeve, which is the Norwegian financial paper about, um, about, you know, how to, you know, people talk very highly about diversity in organizations and how important it is to their bottom line. And I think a lot of people play, pay lip service to it. Um, and I think, once you do have diversity in organization, it will change for the better. And I know that's a very bold statement, but I, I, I truly believe it because you add so much dimensions to um, decision-making that I think is just, uh, it's healthy. You know, it, it kind of triangulates all the decision-making being, being done in, in an organization. I agree. Just looking at the investment piece again, we, it's very interesting to talk about the feedback loop, right? Because given if you, or if you work in the Norwegian oil fund, the feedback loop can be extremely long, right? I think Nikolai has built a simulation because you need to get the feedback loop going. But that's, I mean, that's also the case in venture investing. Like the feedback loop can be very long. How is it to try to improve in a field where the feedback loop can be as long as it is in investing? How do you try to understand if you made the right decision at the right time? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it really depends on, you know, your, what is your, I think as an investor, even as an investor, investment professional, but also as a private investor, you know, if you, you're investing your own money, you have to always have in mind your timeline. Um, so say that your goal is to make as much money as possible or like the highest return on, on capital. I think, you know, 
you know, you can always daily check, you know, what is my year to date return right on, on these stocks that I've suggested for my boss or do I, that I have in my portfolio. Um, but it's also, it depends on your timeline. I would say, you know, the feedback loop in finance is quite quantifiable, right? Because it is a number, you know, if you did well, you had a high return, hopefully better return than what we call the benchmark. So saying, you know, did I beat the market? Did I beat the index, the S&P index, for example? So if the index returned 7% during 20, 2021, and I, I got a 13%, you know, uh, return on capital, then I made money. I beat the market, but I also got a, a healthy double digit return. So the feedback loop in that sense is quite easy to see in finance, I guess. But I think when I refer, like, I think what Nikolai Tangan is talking about is, you know, the Norwegian oil fund has a hundred year time horizon, right? And it's about safeguarding wealth for future generations. So yes, it's very hard to quantify whether or not we were doing the right decisions now under as a portfolio. Um, but it's about, you know, you know decision-making is about using all the information you have access to at this point to make decisions about the future, right? And that is what investing is about, right? You're trying to predict the future, which no one can do, but you're trying to systematically analyze and take into account everything we know now and every assumption we have about tomorrow and to make decisions that we think are best in the time horizons that we that we have you know set so i would say one example is that you know where i work for example our time horizon for investing is 3 to 5 years which is quite long in in sort of an investor communities type of um context so I would say, you know, when I look at companies or try to identify investments that I want to make, I try to think, you know, what is the trends we're seeing in the market? Well, you know, China is going away from focusing on high GDP growth to more equitable growth. So they're going to focus on certain consumer products more, or they're going to not build that many buildings anymore and focus on the infrastructure as much. And and how long do I think that's going to that focus is going to last or, you know, we're in an environment now coming out of the pandemic where central banks are tightening, right, increasing their interest rates. How long do I think that's going to last? Which companies are going to benefit from it? Which companies are not going to benefit from it? Or, you know, everyone, all countries are going into these net zero targets like the EU is you know, net zero by 2050, like which companies or which sectors or industries will benefit from an increased focus on um, becoming net zero, whether it is renewable, um, which I think is where everyone sort of jumped first, right? That was the first assumption you make. Well, okay, wind turbines. Or, but you can also say, you know, what are the largest emitters, right? Buildings emit a lot which companies focus on renovation or green renovation of buildings so they get more energy efficient. So I would say time horizon is really, and I think, you know, for people who do this on a hobby basis, you know, if you're a young person, you have a time horizon of, you're not going to pull that money out until maybe 30 years from now versus my parents who will pull that money out in 10 years. So you need to sort of always switch around a little bit in terms of how you're, I mean, this is a very kind of complex response to your question, I guess, but. Yeah, but, but it's also uh, the part that I find the hardest is also that we can talk about timelines, but it's also on a risk adjusted basis, right? And how you define risk is really a very hard question to answer because it depends on trillions of factors, right? But just some final questions because time is going so fast. Uh, if we try to be a bit more specific, what are the typical blind spots you're seeing in investors trying to understand emerging markets? Because emerging markets always has a great story, right? Prosperity, growth, but it doesn't mean that you are able to capture the value necessarily, at least. It's a really good question. And I think, you know, the, the buzz around emerging markets have definitely kind of become a little um, subdued over the past years, just because 
you are seeing that emerging markets are, you know, usually emerging markets have obtained high growth. You know, if I were to paint it with a broad brush, emerging markets growth has come from exports, right? And so when you do see a deglobalization of the world economy, which we might be seeing, um, you know, that kind of growth engine is might is my, you know, not being as strong as it used to be. Um, so you might have to find other ways to obtain high GDP growth. So, so the, the kind of as exactly what you say that the kind of main reasons for investing in emerging markets is that sort of narrative of you get people, you get, you know, higher economic growth. That means more jobs, that more and more people working. That means people getting a higher middle class demanding more products, getting bank accounts, you know, um, and then you can sort of follow that narrative up as far as you want. Um, I would say that one of the blind spots that I've been very, I, I think one thing that's really interesting is that, you know, as an investor, you want to beat the market, right? You want to obtain higher growth. And I think one thing that people tend to underestimate is the market now still is dominated by, you know, Western, you know, white males in their 50s that are based out of Western countries and who don't have exposure or knowledge to the kind of cultural nuances that are emerging markets. So I think one blind spot definitely is that one is that people tend to react, exaggerate their reaction. So markets get very volatile. So if there's an election coming up in an emerging markets, they talk about, you know, this is a far right candidate. This is a far left candidate. And then eventually what really happens in most cases is that the candidate is moderate, moderate right? And, and I think people be like, oh my God, now they're gonna get a socialist government. And so they kind of pull their money out fast. And it, it's sort of this like, it's a lot of, I would say dumb money in emerging markets, uh, which is the reason. I think another aspect that gets uh, underestimated is that emerging market companies are used to being in an environment where they trust government or rule of law, or they're used to having the macro environment being very sort of insecure. So as a company, you have to be very nimble. So often you see examples of emerging market companies that are very good at sort of shifting business models or strategies really quickly, um, which is, you know, in a, in a technology age that we live in now is very important. So, you know, as an example, I think some of the best fintech companies in the world are in emerging markets, um, you know, payment services, you know, the mobile payment services, that was, um, that was, um, uh, that's based on a company that in Kenya, it's not from a Western country, you know, it's Mpesa and it was Safaricom. Um, and because, for example, because you have fintech companies in say Brazil or Russia, the banks that operate in these markets are very good in fintech, right? more better in fintech than say, you know, a European company or a US bank that has a lot of these heritage systems in place. And so it's really hard to, it's kind of a slow moving ship, right? It's really hard to sort of change the course of the ship. And I think the fact that because they are in these environments that are very sort of insecure, I think they are very well at adopting to technological changes and they are best in class. And I think Western investors tend to be very arrogant when it comes to emerging market companies. And I think especially when it comes to environmental, social and governance investing, right? ESG investing, which is sort of, you know, the kind of topic du jour. Um, I would say, you know, these are, these are companies who are used to corruption. They're used to social inequity. They're used to climate change. Unfortunately, we see the impact of climate change in these countries faster than we're seeing in, in Europe, for example. And so it's more top of mind for a CEO in India than it is a top of mind for a CEO in Norway. To, 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 it's, it's sort of a, of course, we're going to focus on um, on these things. And of course, we're going to fight corruption. You know, it's, it's, it's way more apparent in these markets. So I think 
that's also another place that's sort of a blind blind spot. Very fascinating. Just to to add on that argument, can we also introduce, uh, just spend a couple of minutes introducing crypto and blockchain because trust a good government and a good central bank isn't easy commodities commodities available to all countries. And I think the bad part when discussing crypto is that discussing discussing crypto from a Norwegian perspective, it's very dumb, right? Because, you know, trust central banks, there are a lot of countries in the world, and especially in Africa, you're seeing crypto having such a great impact because it solves a very important problem for African people, right? No, I, I agree. I, I mean, I could be very short because I don't really know that much about crypto and blockchain, but from an emerging market perspective, I could say that you're completely right in terms of, you know, the, the value of your money that you have in your pocket is that we believe in that money, right? We have a we have a belief that it won't get hyperinflation or, you know, you know, that it that it has worth. You know, and that's sort of a societal agreement that this little piece of paper you have actually is worth a hundred or fifty or whatever, right? And and so I completely agree with you. I think I would say on the blockchain technology. Now I I'm no expert in that at all. That's something I really want to sort of learn more about. But I would say in 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 the context of blockchain i think one thing you know people ask you know what's the silver bullet in emerging markets right education for sure but access to education is a sort of a long term driver it's a structural driver it's not something that will you know solve anything overnight um but i would say one silver bullet is definitely what blockchain technology can do is so one way to build wealth as a person is by having assets, right? And one typical asset that you buy that we in Norway buy when we're in our 20s is, is real estate. And, and being able to prove that the apartment that you own or that I own, there's a system in place where it, you can check, does Vaishali or Christopher own this asset? It's very easy. Um, but in, in places like India, or, or maybe more developed countries, you don't have access to that kind of paperwork. I think it's, I think it's, an, it's an excellent point. And just wrapping up the final questions, do you have any final reflections? I mean, we touched upon a lot of stuff, so it's hard to sort of summarize it, but are there any reflections you would like to just share with the audience? Because we can imagine that there are very many younger people listening who are, would love to have the same career as you have. Is there any final thoughts to wrap this episode up with? I mean, yeah, it's been a really interesting conversation. Um, I would say, I would say for young people, I think one tendency I have when I'm back in Norway, like I am now, is that I will meet people, and if it, if you know, if, if the conversation comes up that I live in New York, people tend to say, "Oh, I've always had a dream about doing that," or you know. And then they sort of say it in a way that that's not going to happen. Like that, that's a dream that I'm not going to follow. And I think for me, you know, speaking about my background that we were, you know, following dreams was just something that was, that came from, you know, my mother's milk. There wasn't any other question. Um, and I think, I think people tend to, I think people tend to set limitations that are, that are made up fictional limitations to themselves. And I think you need to always try to ask the questions like, is this actual limitations that I have? Or is it limitations that I'm just creating because I'm scared to do the things I wanna do? So I'm trying to like make excuses for myself. So I think challenging yourself to um, try to, you know, challenge yourself to not be scared and, and say that the downside, especially if you're a young Norwegian, the downside of moving somewhere is zero. It is absolutely zero. There's only upside to adding multiple dimensions to your life, um, learning who you are somewhere and you fail completely. The learnings you do as a person, the growth that you have as a person is worth the some money that you might have, you know, lost during that period. I think that's one thing. For older people, I would also say, you know, 
I think one mentality that I've gotten from living in New York is nothing is ever too late. Like changing things up is never too late. Um, I go to ballet every Thursday and most of the people I have ballet classes with are, you know, women around my own age. But then I have this 70 year old guy who is always there and he's, you know, decked out in proper ballet outfit and he's there every Thursday and he's, you know, magnificent. And, and that he sort of encapsulate what I think, you know, he's not weird. No one looks at his, him strange every Thursday he does this and he's a retired man. So why shouldn't he? So I think not thinking that things are too late, not thinking you've missed the boat. You know, I think one quote that I saw in an Indian movie was that sometimes the wrong train will get you to the right station is such a kind of heartwarming thing to say that despite, you know, all these different routes that you're taking, like eventually everything in, in retrospect get, like led you to the person that you were supposed to be career-wise or personality-wise or who you were supposed to be, but do not put limitations on yourself. That is the only person that that's going to hurt is yourself. That's cheesy, but you know. <laughs> I was about to say it's a perfect ending. So uh, thank you so much for taking the time, Ashali. It was a pleasure finally getting you on the show. Thank you for having me. Over the last years, we have tried to give our community the best possible content on business, investing, and entrepreneurship. If you have enjoyed this free content over time and find it valuable, it would be amazing if you want to support us by making a small donation in our Patreon. Just click the link in the description to have a look. If you want to watch this episode as well, please head over to our YouTube channel and make sure to subscribe to the channel.